Hello and welcome to Different Conversations, where every week we have a different academic from the University of Westminster's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and we talk through some of their interesting current and topical research. Uh, if you've enjoyed our podcast so far, don't forget to subscribe, whether you're listening to the audio channel on Spotify, on iTunes, or any of the other channels we're on, or if you're watching this video on YouTube, uh, either option's good. So this week, I'm pleased and super excited to welcome Professor Rachel Aldred. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bradley. Nice to see you. It's um, a massive pleasure to have you here. Uh, I've been following your work for a while now, and we've crossed paths a few times at Westminster. And I have to throw in at the start immediately in terms of like, an almost like a, a, a kind of a declaration of conflict of interest as a cyclist and a, a research scientist. Our worlds almost overlap a little bit, so it's great to have you on board. Um, so saying that, talking about your research and not telling people what it is, which is a bit mean, Perhaps you might like to start off just telling us a bit about yourself, who you are and what you do at Westminster. Sure. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a professor of transport, but I don't have a background in transport engineering. My background is actually sociology and social science. So I'm really interested in a lot of the stuff around sort of policy, politics, power, inequalities. And so that's really how I came into this when I got interested in how street space was allocated and how people behaved in street space. So I've kind of been working in this area really for about um, 12 or 13 years now. Um, and I run something called the Active Travel Academy which focuses on walking and cycling uh, using a range of research methods and really looking at um, all kinds of aspects from injuries and near misses to uptake interventions infrastructure culture all kinds of stuff related to active travel that's uh, a brief summary of the incredibly huge amount of work you do a, a modest summary I think if anything um, congratulations on the re recent professorship by the way I didn't mention it at the start it's a huge achievement uh, a pinnacle for every academic and uh, deserving, I'm sure. And so you kind of you mentioned it briefly. The first time I ever became aware of you and your work at Westminster was the near miss project uh, in terms of cyclists using roads and cityscapes. What was that all about? Well, that was a real passion for me and obviously for a lot of people as well. When I um, was running the Near Miss Project, um, just uh, as an aside, I often ask people in research, you know, participants, would you like to be kept updated about the, the research? I mean, that's just general good practice often. And usually a few people say yes. In the Near Miss Project, 97.5% of participants said yes. And that kind of scared me. I was a bit like, wow, if I mess up this project, a lot of people are really going to notice it. Uh, so the Near Miss Project kind of came about from my interest in this kind of this gap between people on the one hand would say well cycling okay it's not safe as it should be in this country but on the other hand you're very unlikely to be killed if you go for a bike ride so mm -hmm. objectively it's it's fairly safe on the other hand there would be a load of people saying including saying uh, to me wow I'd be really scared to go out and ride a bike in London or wherever in fact so there's this general fear and then there's this objective statistics there seems to be a gap between them and a lot of the debate was around well people don't realize how safe it is and I kind of thought well that maybe there's something else going on here maybe there's something we're not measuring um, which lies in between and which is to do with the subjective experience everyday experience of using our roads or even seeing our roads you know perhaps from the top deck of a bus seeing how people interact with pedestrians cyclists car drivers and so on and that's what I was trying to measure and nobody was measuring it you know we were measuring we measure road fatalities very well we measure serious and slight injuries um, increasingly less well 
um, through the police injury statistics, but we weren't measuring those incidents that if you um, cycle um, in, in the UK, you will experience where something nearly happens, uh, but you know, you, you're not injured, you don't fall off, you don't, you know, and that was what I wanted to measure because I thought this was kind of the missing link and these experiences could tell us something about why people feel the way they do about cycling. So that's what I set out to measure. And I said, I had this idea of the, doing a one day diary. So people signed up in advance and they said, okay, on this particular day, I will keep a record of any cycle trips I do and any incidents, annoying or scary or whatever incidents that I experience. And I got an outpouring of um, incidents. I got a lot of stuff, um, you know, thousands and thousands of incidents. And it was really, it was an eye opener for me, both in terms of the quantitative results. And this was the first time at a national level that we could say, okay, here's a rate for near misses that we can compare to injuries. But also, I mean, I read, you know, I, I, I had help on the project but I read all this stuff myself as well and read these experiences and it gave me kind of also a, a deep qualitative understanding of what the kind of things that were happening to people which was at times really quite scary. Yeah and um, I think it, it also kind of disclosing my participation I think because we always keep our participants <laughs> anonymous but I'm pretty sure I was one of your participants from memory I remember signing up from it. Oh thank you. Um, <laughs> Because that was a good idea. And like you say, there was, you, or you were saying, excuse me, the results were a bit eye-opening that you didn't expect the, uh, a number of people responding, but also what you found. Mm. Yeah, which was basically that people who regularly cycle in the UK um, could expect to experience a very scary incident on around a weekly basis, which kind of tells you something about the day to day, you know, what, what, what kind of situations people are finding themselves in out there. And the thing we found in the second year, because we ran it for second year, and second year we asked about cycling experience, um, which I didn't think to do in the first year. Um, somebody helpfully suggested this would be a good idea. I can't remember who. I should credit them but anyway so I I um yeah included a question about experience um how long they've been cycling for and most people in the study have been cycling for quite a long time so this was people who you would think might be quite hardened to some of these experiences but there was a minority who've been cycling less than two years so in the second year we were able to look at um the, the different any differences and we found that those new cyclists were having around twice um the twice the number of very scary incidents on their cycle trips as the more experienced cyclists. So if you sort of think about that again, that somebody new takes up cycling within a few days, mm. something has happened to them that is very scary. And that for me is also an insight into why we're struggling to keep people cycling as well as to get them cycling in the first place. And also when you look at some characteristics as well, for instance, women, people who cycle more slowly are having more of these incidents. So also one of my passions is to make cycling and, and actually travel more broadly, more inclusive. Um, mm. And this, gives us another insight into why when you look out on the streets um, in the UK you tend to see people um, from you know the, 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 um, you don't see a wide diversity of demographics let's say. Yeah I do I do get what you mean there and um, I think that's a really key finding in fact it's, it's almost a kind of a terrifying finding if you think about trying to include people in active transport that the people who are the newest are having the worst experience mm -hmm. but yeah and then, then you bring it up, up to date now to where we are at the moment in this kind of uh, COVID-19 world we live in. And you're seeing this really positive push towards cities uh, encouraging green exercise. We're both Londoners and London in particular is pushing quite hard, but we're seeing it throughout the UK at least. Uh, so then if we want to get more people on their bikes, we know that people getting on their bikes sometimes struggle. What, what do we need to be doing either individually or maybe even more uh, urban city planning wide, which I guess mm. is one of your areas of expertise. 
Exactly. I mean, action at a range of levels. I mean, the national um, level, more support, more funding, more. One of the problems that we have in this country is we've had years of um, cuts and austerity and obviously local authorities and are now in an extremely difficult situation as well. Um, so a lot of them um, lack the, well, they need the funding, but they also often need the technical support, the advice. Um, they, they don't necessarily have the transport capacity planning capacity to make the changes that we need to make so there's you know we, we are seeing authorities putting in place temporary measures you know it's nice to see around the corner from me some um, what we call modal filters gone in um, which are basically um, in neighborhoods um, they're um, just planters or bollards or whatever that allow people walking or cycling through um, you can access any house any address by car but you can't just cut through the area in a car so they reduce the amount of through motor traffic and my research has shown that that kind of thing is you know um, helps people walk and cycle more it helps walking as well because it means that local neighborhoods are quiet you don't have people cutting through local neighborhoods trying to avoid main roads so, um, so things things are starting to happen but you know authorities like like the authority I live in, Hackney, um, has experience of putting these kind of things in before. This is something they know how to do. But for a lot of parts of the country, this isn't something that they've done before. They're not used to building high quality bike infrastructure. They're not used to um, putting in place these traffic reduction measures. And yeah, they, they need some they need some support. They need some help to do so, as well as funding. And there is some emergency funding. Um, but, you know, we, it needs to be more and it needs to be sort of a long term um, more guaranteed ring fence budget because historically we spent a lot less on cycling than they do for instance in the Netherlands and when you think about it, the Netherlands already basically has a really good network of bike infrastructure so they're paying their money goes to maintain and upgrade and improve it we need our money just to create the thing in the first place so it's really positive to see authorities um, taking steps and yeah as you say it's not just London there's lots of good examples um, authorities across the country but I worry that we end up with um, a patchwork and that the authorities that have more capacity potentially more resource more knowledge um, and so on are able to do some of these things and people who live in other parts of the country are missing out and they they don't have access to those facilities yeah i i think i know what you mean having um having cycled in london for the last 10 years i think it is there's <laughs> definitely uh uh boroughs who do and who don't and classic examples of cycling that just don't go anywhere for example uh it's always insane to see and so I guess there's yes. kind of a positivity if you look at, let's say outside of London for once, uh, Manchester with uh, Chris Boardman being based there now and pushing cycling very hard. I was going to say, I worry that, that, you know, that some of the large metropolitan areas, you know, where there is the political will at least have more capacity to do this. But, um, you know, if you look at some of the smaller cities and towns, you know, some of those are pretty compact, you know, wouldn't mm. actually take that much to create some good cycle routes. Um, but, you know, they're very car dependent because they're quite hostile at the moment. Um, there'll be a few um, busy radial routes into the town centre, into the city centre, and people don't want to cycle. They maybe don't even want to walk because the roads are so hostile. So, so, you know, in, in a sense, there's, there's an awful lot of potential in some of those smaller places. But if, if they get left behind, it, it feels like it's not fair. Those people will miss out. Yeah, absolutely. I see where you're going with that. Um, and so when you talk about uh, potential for impact in those smaller towns, um, one thing we've seen, I don't want to make this the London podcast because that's not the point. <laughs> but one thing that we've experienced in London is they're taking away entire lanes of major arterial routes. And saying, okay, this is now a cycle lane and uh, it is going to cause traffic, but it's going to change the way we travel. Is that the kind of thing uh, you, we might need for smaller towns, for Coventry's, for uh, 
that, that kind of scale because they are very car dependent, like you say. Yes, it's funny you mentioned Coventry because that's what I was, yeah, I know Coventry a little bit. And actually that's one of the places that I was thinking of because it is quite compact. The distances are quite short and, you know, yeah, you can see what you would need to do. There are some wide um, radial routes that you could, and in fact, there are proposals now to put cycle infrastructure um, on them. Whereas in London, um, you know, the cycle superhighway north, south, east, west, yeah, it's really good but it doesn't cover the vast majority of journeys that people make. You need to do an awful lot more. And obviously in London, we have, you know, over 30 transport authorities. We have quite a complex governance um, problem as well. Um, but in terms of reallocation of road space, I mean, I, I think, the, and this is kind of an ongoing frustration in transport planning, which is that transport, many transport planners now agree that, you know, you don't build your way out of congestion by putting in more lanes of motor traffic because that makes it easier to drive, makes it more attractive to drive, and it encourages more people to drive. And in fact, you know, having lots and lots of lanes of motor traffic is really antithetical to what a city could and should um, be about or any uh, any urban area um, so but by contrast you, there's, there's research showing that when you take away that space from motor traffic you know it doesn't all just go somewhere else you know people make different decisions and we've seen in the current situation that you know which is very difficult in many ways but people do make different decisions they do change their behavior they are able to adapt and that's what you find when you change the allocation of road space one of the things that really interests me as a sociologist is how the way that we set up road space it sends messages and what we've tended to do in the past has been on one hand we've said piously or at least at least the better authorities have said piously pedestrians are at the top then cyclists then public transport then private cars you know pedestrians are the most important but when you actually go out on the streets as a pedestrian it's nothing like that you know you, you struggle to cross the road you know you, even at a crossing you have to press a button you have to wait you know it's, it's always the cars first so it's really the way we design stuff tells us who is important and who isn't and I think one of the things that is quite important in many of these schemes. I mean, Walsham Forest is a good example. They've built some uh, really nice protected cycle infrastructure in Walsham Forest and done it by taking space largely from motor traffic. And when you sort of see um, a space given over in that way and a really high quality cycle track being built, it really challenges the image of cycling in this country. You're kind of like, wow, that looks like something that is built for people that matter. That looks like um, people who cycle are important. And similarly, if you put in place, you know, measures to give pedestrians priority, it sends a message and it says actually people who walk are maybe more important, you know, than they used to be. And people who walk um, deserve to get to their destination quickly. So it is, it, and it all hopefully works together. It gives, it makes driving that bit more difficult, that bit more inconvenient, but it also makes walking um, and or cycling that more, bit more attractive, a bit more comfortable, um, that bit more safe and so on. So it's sort of changing, uh, changing the signals that we're sending and so on. And I think, I think you know, you do see in, in surveys as well that people do say that they would support that reallocation road space, even if it makes their journey take a couple of minutes longer. So while you often see when schemes are proposed, they're very controversial and there's loud voices against, mm -hmm. that's not ne necessarily representative of everyone. But as with all these things, often you don't necessarily you know, the, the picture you get doesn't necessarily represent wider views. So a bit of a, a carrot and stick approach then, perhaps, where we incentivise and not punish, but just make it a little bit more difficult, you say? Yeah, I think so. And the, the thing is, it's this is, again, something interesting around some of the transport planning literature because I think we've tended to tiptoe around it and maybe to say um, there's stick policies over here and there's carrot policies over here but the thing is time space um, budgets and so on are all finite so if you're going to give for instance more um, time to pedestrians in crossing the road that has to come from somewhere right it's a carrot for pedestrians but it has to come from somewhere and it should 
income from the time given to people in private cars, I think. Um, so basically, to get that time for pedestrians, it needs to come from somewhere. So very often, um, carrot and stick policies go together, or you reallocate car parking as bike parking, for instance. So it's a little bit harder to park your car, it's a little bit easier to park your bike. They go together. You can't just magic up space from nowhere, usually. Um, um, one example I've shared with my students before in terms of active transport was in, uh, I think it was Eastbourne, a uh, small seaside town in England. And I used to do a lot of research down there during my PhD. Uh, unrelated to the story I'm talking about, but they have a, a very busy main road right outside their train station. They have a lovely small town centre, a train station right there, and then a four-lane road that cuts right between the two of them. And then they've got a, a crossing, and there's a sign on the crossing saying, not suitable for older people. Because the time to take oh. the four lanes is too long for the timing of the lights. And so I hear exactly what you're saying about incentivization of pedestrian. That is awful. And also, if you think about the demographics of Eastbourne as well, yes, right? Then exactly. that's, I mean, what are the are people just going to be stuck? They're unable to get to, to, to the train station or back. And that is also an important issue, too, I think, around equalities as well, that we have to make sure that um, walking and cycling infrastructure facilities and so on are suitable for all. And yeah, yeah, what are we saying? Oh, sorry, if you've got a mobility impairment or if you're over 60, you know, don't bother trying to walk anywhere. <laughs> Um, and so we've talked a, a lot about cycling already um, and as a slightly eager cyclist of course I don't want to be just about bikes <laughs> because you are transport infrastructure uh, and also curious about your opinion of e-scooters because there's been this lot of talk recently a lot of talk recently in the media about um, mm. trialing e-scooters e it's hard to say for some reason mm. in the UK and um, getting them more involved in our, our transport of people in urban areas what do we think about this? It's interesting. We've had some discussions uh, about this in the Active Travel Academy. We've actually got a, a PhD student who is studying this um, for a PhD, which was um, certain things are changing very quickly. Initially, we thought that Lorna, the student, you know, might not even be able to study it in this country because nothing might happen. And then obviously things have changed very quickly and the trials have been have been sped up. I mean, I, I think um, it's, it's an interesting um, topic because there's a whole load of sort of potentially benefits and costs and it depends on the context it depends on the regulatory framework and it depends where the trips come from um, as well so if you're in a context where a lot of the trips are coming from the car then you know clearly uh, there's quite a lot of benefits associated with that if you're in a context where people are replacing walking trips with e-scooters then you know potentially there are health and environmental disbenefits on the other hand there may be some time benefits because they can make their trips um, more quickly I think one of the really positive things about this debate is that it's opened up um, some arguments around what infrastructure is for and how we allocate road space and what footways should be for, what carriageways should be for, and so on. So, um, you know, in terms of thinking about space for cycle infrastructure, if this space is also going to cater for um, e-scooters, which, you know, seems an appropriate place to put them, putting them on the footway with pedestrians doesn't seem so appropriate. This is going to cause problems for a lot of pedestrians. So if um, we're going to have cycle lanes, cycle tracks that are going to serve those vehicles as well as bikes, then we, you know, that implies that we put potentially need more space to allow people to pass each other, to allow people to coexist um, together. And some um, writers have started putting forward the idea that rather than calling them cycle lanes and cycle tracks, we should maybe call them mobility lanes. Um, Isabel Clement from the um, this, uh, Disabled Cycling Organization, Wheels for Wellbeing, has suggested this, that you know we should be thinking about infrastructure for not just bikes, 
um, and e-scooters but other kinds of mobility aids we've got the weird situation at the moment where mobility scooters are not meant to be using bike tracks which <laughs> just seem you know yeah exactly and potentially um, jogging as well you know we see more people jogging um, at the moment for exercise but potentially could also be for transport so you know thinking about how we build infrastructure that caters for not just cyclists or pedestrians but a range of other um, types of light vehicle as well so you know I think there's a lot of issues to be resolved but I think it has been um, helpful in terms of opening up some of these debates and um, forcing people to think about well, where you know what kind of space should we allocate what kind of um, mode should we prioritize and um, I never get to talk about my research because I'm always hosting these shows but uh, helping people be more active apparently it's good for you as well right this is a healthy active living <laughs> Yes, indeed. And that is um, one of the kind of exciting things about I mean, transport, I've, I, you know, coming from sociology into transport, there's, it's, it's quite interesting. There's a range of um, differences. One of the things I quite like about transport is that it is quite multidisciplinary and it changes all the time. And the fact that some of those health, um, uh, public health disciplines and um, transport coming together and actually um, challenging the assumptions that transport people have made. And I, yeah, I think that's just great. And the fact that um, Transport for London um, sees itself as having a public health remit is, you know, really, really, really interesting and challenges the traditional dominance of transport is about um, saving minutes, getting to a destination, that kind of thing. I like that, that parallel. That's really interesting, this idea that transport is, uh, has a health aspect and benefit, not just a uh, how quick you get somewhere. That's a really nice uh, line, I think. That's really interesting. And who knew that? I hope we would expect someone like TFL to think about public health, right? How new is this? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And they have this um, transport and health action plan. You know, they have the healthy streets approach and they, you know, suddenly it becomes something rather than something that's completely off the radar. It becomes something that actually you'll get plaudits for being being able to say we are the first transport authority to do this and we are a leader. And that's, you know, cities like London really like being able to say that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that I think surprised me a lot uh, in the last couple of years was exactly that, was when TfL started talking about how do we get people off the tube? We need to increase capacity by 2 million people in the next whatever number of years the message was, and we want a million of them not to use our services. <laughs> what kind of service encourages people not to use them? <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. yes, and obviously at the, the current period, you know, some, some of the... Um, most forward-looking cities across the world have been planning and basically saying like Paris saying okay these metro trips we know the metro is not going to be able to carry the capacity of people that it has been people will be looking for alternatives and therefore like in Rue de Rivoli in Paris we have to create um, this you know we, we have to turn this these streets over to active modes to walking cycling in, in Paris also e-scooters um, public transport as well and sort of reallocate so that people um, are you know, people who would have taken the metro are able to choose walking, cycling, e-scooters and so on instead. And I think we're still in London. We're still not quite doing that strategically um, enough in terms of thinking um, how active travel could um, be used in the shorter to medium term to take pressure off public transport. And then in the longer term, obviously, to, to um, in terms of taking over a greater share of car trips as well. So uh, I always think London's not doing bad growing up where I did in Auckland in New Zealand, where uh, the last time I did the census in New Zealand when I lived there, I lived in a student flat with four people and we owned seven cars, I think. <laughs> because that was just normal because you had to drive to get everywhere. And if you're going to the corner to get milk, you had to drive because there was a motorway in the way. And that was how we grew up. It was 
different worlds, I think. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, London has made some great. I mean, we, the fact that we've in London, we've um, really substantially cut the proportion of trips um, by car um, over a period of 15 years. I think the, the percentage point mode share of the car has gone down by about eight percentage points. So it's, we've really had a substantial um, shift, obviously, because London's population has grown over that period that hasn't translated into a proportional decrease in cars on the road. But still, you know, the way that London has traveled has changed um, over the relatively short term quite a lot so you know london is obviously you know um doing you know there has uh, there's a lot of good things about london but i think at the moment we are risking being left behind by paris where Anne hidalgo is you know just um announcing that it's like they've done the first step for some of these streets which was to put in place um bike tracks but now going one step beyond and actually um really doing more much more radical road space reallocation opening up the banks of the seine to people walking cycling and it really i think it the current situation as well in the current context um it is really about um you know saving the city as well because you could there could be different responses to the current situation and i've read pieces where the the suggestions that people will move out of cities because they don't feel safe on the other hand and hidalgo's vision of a 15-minute city where you know everything you need should be close to where you live and should be walkable bikeable e-scootable um whatever should be should be available to you locally is also really attractive you know that you don't have to sit in a car for ages you don't have to sit on a crowded train for ages things should just be there and available for you so it does you know it does force us to ask about what kind of city we want and how we can support people living in cities which ultimately you know is should be a sustainable way for people to live so then the question becomes i guess how long should this take uh you raised the example of the Netherlands earlier when we were chatting. Everyone always talks about Amsterdam being this incredibly cycle-friendly city. And I remember being just stunned by the fact that that's not the way it's always been, that it's actually quite recent. And in the 70s, it was a car town. Oh, sorry, probably earlier than that, I guess, 50s and 60s, perhaps. You can probably correct me on that. But is this a generational change that it's going to take time to change culture? Or can we do this quicker? How impatient should we be? Well, I think um, things can change. I think, as, as the current we've seen in the current situation, things can change really quickly, and things tend to change quickly when they have to, when there isn't, a, you know, when 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 there aren't. They don't tend to change um, because. Um, things you know there's uh, there's nice things that might happen in the future it's it's often more because something forces us to do things differently and we see that people's individual travel habits often change um, when they move workplace they move home they have kids they have things you know things change in their lives so we do re react to disruption very quickly um, and so I think change can be very quick change I mean when I was doing um, I've been leading an evaluation uh, study of the um, mini Hollands in outer London which is um, has involved the creation of a lot of low traffic neighborhoods bike tracks and so on and we saw measurable results in change of travel behavior after a year which i did not expect i was ready to say to transport for london who'd funded it well sorry we don't have anything to say it's to show at one year because but then we wouldn't expect it because change takes time but actually we were measuring 40 to 45 minutes more active travel a week after a year using a rigorous design with the control and intervention group so things can change pretty quickly and i think sometimes i get frustrated when um people sort of say well well, we need to we need to change the views of the younger generation we need to educate we need to wait until they're you know our age for them to do something better and I know that's not what you were saying but um you know the younger the kids 
actually really want things to be different it's actually us that are the problem um, and when you ask the kids about how they want to travel to school they want to walk they want to cycle they don't want to be in the car um, and looking at the Fridays for Future looking at all the, the, the young people's protests you know they want things to be different and they, they want things not to be messed up further so I think um, particularly in terms of thinking about the behavior of, of younger people you know there is a chance for change to happen very very quickly and the great thing is as well when changes are made people you know they may often be as I've said before controversial but often um, after they've happened you know people suddenly people see that their street doesn't have to be just full of cars passing through the whole time that there could be benches and planters and it could be nice it could be children playing it could be how they may be remembered in the distant past that their childhood um, was and yeah they, they just want it to be they just want it to be a nicer place to live and I think people are often very scared of change and this is not surprising people are distrustful of local authorities and of authority more generally um, but I think yeah I think there is a lot of scope for um, radical changes to happen quite quickly and to have measurable results. So that leads to the, the kind of the obvious almost last question I really want to ask you which is almost a key one we shouldn't have saved it for last so now you're talking to that individual who maybe wants to make that change who is a bit nervous about maybe jumping on a bike for the first time or being uh, on a bike in an urban area. So uh, what are some suggestions or hints or tips you can have for people who want to make these changes but don't know how? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that it's probably quite necessary to do if people are, um, you know, nervous about cycling is to make their voice heard in terms of asking for better conditions for cycling from local authorities, from local transport authorities, and so on. You know, it's really important that those people, the decision makers, hear from um, people saying, I would like to cycle, I'm a bit nervous to cycle, and if there was a cycle track, if there was a route through this park or whatever it is, then it would make me feel more confident. Um, I would say in the shorter term as well that, you know, speak to get some advice from somebody I've, I've um, personally, I've given a colleague a, a, a route um, from northeast London to the university as a suggestion that is better than probably the obvious one that you would chose, choose when I first started cycling I followed bus routes because they were obvious and they had directions um, destinations marked on them but often these were really quite hairy routes and they were not necessarily very pleasant um, unfortunately there isn't always a nice route we have to, to get to Marleybone at the moment we have to cycle down New Cavendish Street which there was meant to be an improvement done years ago but it is still an unpleasant um, car choke one-way um, busy street with car parking so you know still a need for improvements um, there but I hear that um, we're meant to be getting a pop-up um, bike lane along Euston Road and Marleybone Road so I'm very much looking forward to that so yeah ask, ask somebody for some advice um, and yeah maybe um, also around getting a bike I'd perhaps um, think about trying to get a second-hand one from a reputable um, seller um, you don't necessarily need to spend um, spend lots of money on a bike. Uh, there may be schemes that you can access. Um, yeah, uh, and so, so yeah, those are some those are some ideas. I think we might do a bit of a link dump as well in the um, in the blurb for today to give people some access to some resources you've talked about. Um, well, that's been brilliant. If people want to find out more about you, about your research, about your work, about Active Academy, where would we direct them? Where should we find you on social media or online? Sure. So the Active Travel Academy um, has a um, blog site on the university website. So that's um, blog.westminster.ac.uk and then slash um, ATA. So um, we also have a Twitter feed, which is at active underscore ATA. Um, and 
my own personal Twitter feed is at Rachel Aldred. So um, yeah, there's various um, various different ways to catch up with us. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty easily Googleable as well. So papers that I've written can quite easily be found, and mostly are freely available. Um, well, are freely available either on the journal site or on my website, if not. And once again, we'll make sure to uh, link dump those so we've got them available. Uh, and that's unfortunately all we have time for. So thank you so much, Professor Rachel Aldred, for appearing today on Different Conversations. It's been a pleasure.